Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, and today, another great day. I get so excited about these podcasts, and those of you who know me in real life know that when you're around me, I don't get very excited about many things. I tend to talk very, very slow, even slower than I'm talking now. And today, my guest, David Wilde, presumably that's a stripper name. And his real name is David Borowitz or something like that. I'm really excited about, and I'm going to tell you all about him. I'm not going to spoil it right now, but I do want to say right now, I want to be very thankful to all of you for all of your emails and FedExes and tweets and Facebook messages. I never thought that I would be a guy who looked in his inbox and saw 25,000 emails. Thank God there's a separate place for those where I can look at them in my spare time, and hopefully before I die, I'll get back to all of them. But I really appreciate everything. You guys are amazing. I also appreciate you going to the Amazon banner on the barrycats.com slash podcast page. It's really great. Amazon giving my boys shekels for their college education, and it doesn't cost you anything. Thank you for that. And what else can I say as I stare at my guest, David Wilde? Now, as you know, on these podcasts, I just sit across from something. I never know what I'm going to say. And I was driving over here thinking to myself. It's very clear you never know what you're going to say. People <laughs> aren't going to be stunned by that. Oh, that's good. Okay, thank you. And I sit across from David. I can honestly say that I didn't know what I was going to say as I was driving over here. Last night, I'm thinking, what am I going to say? I got nothing to say to this guy. This guy's 
done everything, and I don't know what story I could possibly tell that could even remotely have any relation to things. And then coming down the elevator, I thought about where I ran into David Weil, really. I probably met him before in passing, but I really, truly got to meet him at a place, and I think that's where I'm going to go with the story. When you're doing these podcasts in your spare time, like I'm a manager, I produce television shows, I produce some movies. I haven't done like 25 movies, but I've done like five movies. I just did one last year with Amy Schumer and Tom Hanks and Jimmy Fallon that was in the theaters. It was reversed. It was like going to Australia. It was in the theaters negative times, but it got there and it was well received, which was good. I also have done a lot of television. So you got to put these things in perspective and what you're doing and how you're doing it and the spare time you have. And so Adam Carolla was nice enough to invite me to be on his podcast. And I don't consider myself an artist. I don't consider myself a talent, like per se, where I'm going to go on. And so it's a little odd when you're going over there and doing the podcast and you're around people who have done these things over and over again. Adam's show I don't even consider it a podcast. It's truly like a really great radio show. And I'm sitting in the lobby waiting to go on. And I'm sitting next to like a 15-year-old kid. And I'm thinking to myself, Jesus Christ, I am old. Adam's got this probably phenom doing the show. And I'm literally about to put tennis balls on my walker as I come out of this place. And he shares with me that his name is Alec. And he's David Wilde's son. And I was so excited that I was on the show with him because he has this lineage in music that is so special and so unique. And when you have a chance to be around somebody who the list of people that this man has been around that you and I would call a genius, even if we were getting in an argument, we'd get in an argument to say, okay, well, he's a lower level genius than a higher level genius. The level of rock stars and people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who are there now and will be there are just, I don't think anybody has been around more people than David Wilde. And so I got to do the show. He was on the show. I loved his time on there. And I got to be on the show. And it was fun. It was a spirited interview. And I got to talk with David. And as I was driving home, something occurred to me. And it occurred to me again as I was coming down the elevator today. Barry Katz is one of the least appeared people on the Adam Carolla show. I've been on one time. I had a great time on the show. I've been on one time. I thought I did a fairly good job on the show. It was kind of spirited with Adam. I've been on one time. <laughs> I did the show about a year ago. I've been on one time. I have a good relationship with Adam. He asks me to come back on this podcast frequently, or at least has asked me. And I tell him we only do one guest. I've never done two guests. He said, that doesn't matter. We'll change the flow. I have great conversations with him. Just recently, I had one. I've never been asked back on the show. The man I'm sitting across from right now, David Wilde, has done the show more times than anybody in the history 
of the Adam Carolla show, which holds the Guinness World Book of Records <laughs> for many things, but one of the greatest podcasts out there. And I say to myself, well, what does that mean? Well, that means, Barry, that whatever you did didn't necessarily make Adam Carolla feel warm and fuzzy. I mean, he wants to do your podcast again, but he doesn't want you on his again. And if he did want me on, he'd ask me back on. And I would be honored to go back on. And I will do his show again. I'm positive of it. But the point is, is that I'm sitting across from a man who's done the show probably, I would guess, between 100 and 200 times. They celebrated 101 yesterday. That's right. 101 times. I use the word celebrate very loosely. There was no actual. There was a free Diet Coke. (laughs) Well, I am celebrating it today because I think it's a metaphor for how things are in the world. If you look at David Wilde's resume, the way he started, or one of the places that he started, was writing liner notes for albums. And... When he wrote his first liner notes for a certain company or a certain record label or a certain artist, when I look down these 17 pages of liner notes, it's pretty obvious that nobody had him do liner notes one time. I mean, I've never seen so many credits for a man who, great artist, everybody from (laughs) Sinatra, to the Eagles, to Bon Jovi, to Van Halen. It's just unbelievable who trusted him and allowed him to be a part of their world. You might say, well, it's liner notes. But in my world, that's always what I looked forward to when I got an album besides the music. And so I think the point I'm trying to make here is that I'm sitting across from a man who knows how to work and knows how to make people feel wonderful, make people feel safe, make people feel like great things are happening. And he makes people feel like everything's going to be okay and everything he does for them is going to be extraordinary. And that's why these people from the Rolling Stones to Sam Kinison to Boston to Neil Diamond used him. And that's why Adam Carolla has used him 101 times on his show that bears his name and has used me one time. It's because David Wilde is a guy who makes the people he works with and for feel great. And he makes them feel great because he does great work. And he just doesn't do great work because you don't do the Corolla show 101 times unless you're doing something great. Well, you might say, oh, well, he's a friend of Adam's and they're a good friend. They hang out and do whatever. But Adam Corolla isn't like that. Adam Corolla is a hardworking person. He might not be a guy who ever had a plan in his life to do anything, but he's one of the most hardworking, unique, and special people in the world. And whether you agree with me or not, Adam Carolla is a genius. And after Howard Stern, in terms of this medium, I don't know of anybody else who can come up 
with a fresh two, three, one hour a day, every day for his entire life coming from a guy who scraped tile in an airport hangar for $8 an hour. So I guess if there is any thought or lesson today, it's the fact that just be as great as you can be. Be the kind of guy or girl who really can hang out with people and they feel wonderful when you're around. And when you do work for them, they feel like it's the best work that they've ever had in terms of that area of their life. And I can guarantee you, if you do that and concentrate on that, whatever job you're in, you'll have the kind of career that David Wilde has. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with buried cats and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now? People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. 
and in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, and my guest, David Wild. I am so excited. You can't believe it. Before I read this bio, you sit down here, and maybe I'm too self-deprecating. No. When a guy sits down who's worked with God, he literally did God's album <laughs> and his book, and I sit down, my ass hits the chair, and the first thing he says to me, yeah, I listen to all of these uh, podcasts that you do. I've done like 135. How is it possible? These things go like two hours. How could you have that kind of time? I love walks. And so I, I, about three years ago, I started listening to podcasts. On, and that's one of the ways I got into Corolla. But I do. I, 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 a podcast is a perfect walk. Except some of yours can be, <laughs> you can actually get to a different state. <laughs> I think I might have joined the David Kissinger one. That was the first one I got into a different state. I said, you really listen to all these podcasts? I mean, why would you listen to all these podcasts? And this is where a true artist comes to play. <laughs> he says, I, I, I listen to see if anybody mentions my name. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Awesome. Well, I'm going to give you the proper introduction, then we're going to go. Good. And you never know when these crazy things are going to happen. Please try to stay prone <laughs> during this bio. And I will stare at Max, my producer's yellow hanky and blue blazer. He literally looks like if Charles Nelson Riley were straight and good looking. My producer Max were... Charles Nelson Riley wasn't straight? Sorry to disappoint you there. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> David Wilde is a twice Emmy-nominated television writer, a New York Times best-selling author, and a contributing editor for Rolling Stone. A graduate of Loomis Chafee School and Cornell University, Wilde started his career as a journalist at Esquire before coming to Rolling Stone, where he made his mark as both the music editor and writer. Since 2000, Wilde has spent much of his time writing for television, including the Grammy Awards since that year, wow, as well as the Emmy Awards, the Academy Awards, and other countless television specials. He was nominated for an Emmy as the head writer of 2001's America, a tribute to heroes, which that story is well documented on our Joel Gallon podcast. And he also did 2014's Grammy celebration of the Beatles. Wilde's best-selling books, include Friends, The Official Companion, Friends Till the End, The Showrunners, and Diary of a Player, co-written with Brad Paisley. Wild hosted musicians. I just saw an episode of that as I was doing research for you with Sheryl Crow on Bravo for two seasons and is frequently seen as a pop culture commentator, including CNN's Emmy-winning series The 60s, The 70s, and the upcoming The 80s. He's also the most frequent guest, as I've said, in the history of the popular Adam Carolla 
show podcast. In September 2015, it was announced he and Phil Rosenthal, another one of my guests, will co-host a new digital talk show for Fandango called Naked Lunch, in which they buy a free lunch for their friends in movies, television, and music, and don't wear any clothes. I'm kidding about that part. Wilde may also be the only Jewish-American writer to ever win a Muslim Public Policy Award with Cat Stevens and write for Pope Francis's recent mass event at Madison Square Garden. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest, who is now waking himself up, David Wilde. May the Pope and God help us all. Okay, I want, right off the bat, the liner notes, you reminded me of a couple of stories. Can I throw them out there? No, you're here to just be silent okay. the entire time. Jesus Christ. Um, it's weird how, like, the liner notes, my wife has always said, uh, the out liner notes are the, in largely not the most profitable thing I do. Television, you know, it pays better, certainly now that the record industry has collapsed. But Kind of like podcasts. Yeah, exactly. But it is incredibly meaningful. Like when you said a few, I, had, I don't think about any of this stuff because the good thing about being busy is you don't have time to really reflect too much on this stuff. But you mentioned a couple things that were very meaningful. The Sinatra, this is not a funny story, but just like writing liner notes for Sinatra, it changed my life in a million ways. It was, that was really early on in my liner notes career. I got moved out here by Jan Wenner, uh, 1991. I was out here. Now I'm going to stop yeah. you. I want you to tell our audience what the definition of liner notes are in case they don't know. And I want you to tell them who Jan is as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, liner notes are uh, in the old term when there were CDs and albums, uh, were essays written on a record, you know, sort of, so an artist in the old days, like in the Sinatra days, you know, they might have like an in-house guy at Warner Brothers who'd write some like sort of bebop poetry and put it on the album cover. But over the years, it's just sort of, uh, especially on anthologies or, you know, retrospectives, they'll ask someone to write an essay to put their career in retrospect. And it's some of the most exciting calls I get are those calls. Uh, I remember being home on a third, no, I was not home. I was, I'm sorry. I was at work on a Thursday and I got a message call Mick Jagger right away, which I don't get that that often. <laughs> I had interviewed him once or twice, but it wasn't like, there's some artists I'm friendly with. He's not one of them, but I'm a huge fan. And I called him back, and now it's Thursday night, and I'm home at this point, and he goes, uh, David Love, could you write us some liner notes for Friday? And I was like, absolutely. And I realized, hold on, it's Thursday night, so that means by, like tomorrow morning. I said, okay. And then I had to negotiate my fee with him directly, which I don't, uh, I have agents who, uh, you know, around the corner, I have agents. Now tell our audience yeah. when you're negotiating something directly with an iconic star. Who went to the London School of Economics. Do you just say, look, Nick, um, I'm not going to tell you what I make. Just give me whatever you feel is fair. Well, these are often the worst and most difficult conversations I've ever had. I married a business manager. I married the hottest MBA I could marry because I hate talking money are there a lot of hot mbas there one because the guys my on my wife. floor aren't very hot <laughs> you know he was you know he's adorable no my wife is the cutest business manager i could find and so i yeah no th these negotiations with your heroes yeah I, I could write a book on negotiating money with my heroes and how i've screwed it up at times uh ringo star who i do know m much better than i know mick once called me to do some little favor after i've worked with him on many things and for some reason, this time, he negotiated directly with me. And he goes, do you want to do this one for love or for money? And I said, I'll do this one for love. But just out of curiosity, if you were going to pay me for this, what would you think you had to pay me? And he said, 
I don't know, 20 grand. And it was something that would take me an hour. And I was like, fuck, I should have done it for money. I went for love in this case because I, I happen to love Ringo. But even love, what he would pay you would be what you were expecting. Yes. Oh, well, that, no, that was crazy. Paying me way too much. I, in fact, you were talking about on a recent podcast, maybe with the leftists, uh, Irving Azoff. The greatest, the opposite of that was I did a project with the Eagles once and like things with Don Henley can do, it took a lot longer than you might think. But it was great. I absolutely love Don Henley, one of the smartest guys in rock. You know, Bowie, Henley, I could name, there's three or four of the smartest people I've ever met were, were artists. And, the, uh, you know, artists who were also just geniuses on every level. But in any case, uh, Irving, after like three months of working on this project, I said, Irving, we never talked money. He goes, here's what you do. You write me the biggest motherfucking invoice you can imagine. And I said, that's a really weird negotiating strategy, uh, Irving goes, just go home and write me the biggest motherfucking invoice you can imagine. And I went home and I spent the longest night with my wife, who is much more money uh, knowledgeable, money adjacent than I am, discussing what number do we put down? That's such a, that literally, it, we could put any number down. But I don't want to be crazy, but I also don't want to not take advantage of that opportunity because that never happens. And so finally we came to a number. And we sent it, we faxed it. That's how long ago this was. In the record industry, there was still a lot of money. And as I understand it, he took it, wrote in red ink, fuck you, pay this, and sent it to the head of a record company who he was feuding with. So I was the beneficiary of him, one of his brilliant power moves. And it was fantastic. The company called and said, we've never paid anything like this for this sort of thing, and we're going to do it. Because they were more afraid of Irving Azoff than they were of writing that check. So I only wish that would happen all the time. That does not, Mick on the other hand, threw out a number, which was pretty low. And I said, okay, because I, I would have written, you know, this is for 40 licks, which is their like greatest hits. And I, I would have written it for nothing, truthfully. I, I hate saying that because now someone, I get asked to do that fairly often now. But I said, I want two tickets to any show I want. And I want you and, Keith to both sign the album. I got my check, I got my tickets, but I never got the signed copy. So when a year later, a couple years later, I get a call from, uh, a couple years, many years later maybe, I get a call from Rolling Stone uh, at like noon on a Friday saying, get to Disney now. And I went, why? I said, you're interviewing Johnny Depp and Keith Richards, go now. And that's not the way it usually works. You don't, usually you know, you have time to prepare. You're gonna interview Keith Richards and Johnny Depp next week. But this was leave now. And what had happened was another journalist, a film journalist, I think, had been assigned to do this cover story on Keith and Johnny. And unfortunately, he asked two questions that caused Keith Richards to throw him out of the trailer. He, 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 Keith has a famous skull ring that he's worn forever. And he goes, is that something they gave you to play a pirate? And immediately, I guess, Keith was unhappy. And then Keith looked unhappy. So I guess this journalist, as it, I was told, said, will you and Johnny arm wrestle? I want to see who is tougher. At which point Keith Richards picked up a banana off a fruit tray and said to this journalist, if you don't get the fuck out of this trailer, I'm going to shove this banana so far up your ass, you bleed to death, you fucking idiot. At which point he went weeping out of the trailer, at which point a call was made to Rolling Stone, at which point I picked up the phone and I ended up walking in and I walk in the door, and Keith, who knows I've written the liner notes to 40 Licks, goes, 
hi david would you like a banana <laughs> so it was i had the easiest interview it couldn't have, it was couldn't have been nicer or more pleasant but i got keith to sign the cd that day and then when mick did the grammys a couple years ago i finally collected on my invoice for the liner notes it took me years maybe eight years to get that done tell our audience the closest thing to what happened to that other journalist that happened to you the interview that went bad the one that just if you interviewed a thousand people in your life and there's number one and there's number a thousand yes what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you the worst is something that and Barry and I, because not only do I listen to Barry's podcast, I will follow him to whatever podcast he does. So this is on, he did Storyworthy. I can't I, I, believe yes. you. Oh, no. And I did Storyworthy. And this is a story I told on Storyworthy. So I will not give you the By the way, I was the 350th guest on Storyworthy. Clearly, there were 349 <laughs> other people moving the needle before me. I, How many times have you done Storyworthy? I'm doing it for the second time. See? Uh, tomorrow. See what happens. No, Friday. Friday. So I won't give the whole version of the story. If you really want Please this. give the whole version. Oh, this is a long story. Okay. Uh, one of my heroes, my heroes, there are people on that list of liner notes and things. Bob Dylan, one of my heroes. Van Morrison is another one of my absolute heroes. I'd never met Van Morrison because Van Morrison hated rock journalists, maybe humanity in general, but certainly rock journalists, hated Rolling Stone, had not talked to us in years, apparently because he felt, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, that some earlier journalist had, journalist had given basically directions to how to get to his house. So he was not talking to Rolling Stone. I get a call out of the blue. Van Morrison will only talk to you, and he wants to do a, his first interview with Rolling Stone in years. I was completely thrilled. I was then led on the worst goose chase of my life, where he would schedule interviews in Dublin, in San Francisco, a million places, never coming through. Finally, he, got, he did the Letterman show, and I'm told, Oh, Van, can't wait to meet you. Got to come to the Letterman show. He'll talk to you. Just want to hang out a little bit. Then you'll do the interview a little later. I went to the interview. I'm lined up in the Letterman Hall, which is not the most cozy, warm place always. Very tiny. Yes. And Van walks off stage, and right before I'm supposed to meet him, the manager, who will die of a heart attack for reasons that will become clear uh, in this story, said, okay, just right before Van was walking down the hall, he goes, pretend you're my old friend from high school. And I went, what? Just pretend you're my old friend from high school. And so he goes, Van, this is my old friend from high school, David Wilde. He goes, eh, and ran away. And that was our bonding session. Cut to, I went to Boston, your town, for, I guess, for a long time. And he did a series of dates. I guess it was the Orpheum. Is Orpheum a theater there? Yeah. What's weird is that he would do the Orpheum because the Orpheum is a very, very... I hate to give it this, but very old, dingy, and the way the trajectory of the balconies are, it goes very high up, and you're yeah. looking straight down, one of those old kind of places. Oh, no. Well, I was there for four nights, because what happened was he did a club date at a place, I believe, called The Channel. Yes, The Channel, which there's no real seats, and it's on a channel of water, and it's a very strange place to see a show. No, so I was there for in Boston, staying at a Four Seasons, racking up bills to Jan Wenner, who is the founder of Rolling Stone. And waiting to talk to Van, who is never talking to me. And after five days, I go to the manager. And I said, listen, I am embarrassing myself running up these bills, having not spoken to him. So I'm, I'm leaving after tonight. He goes, no, no. After the show tonight, it was the last show, and Van was having a party at the uh, Hard Rock Cafe in Boston. Yeah. Uh, and it is the worst party I've ever been to. It is a chafing dish. 
and Van Morrison inhaling egg rolls from a chafing dish. The band probably afraid of him. And Peter Wolf, who I know, that's the only saving grace is Peter Wolf from the Jay Giles band, a Boston sort of rock icon, a great rock contour, great guy, great artist. Uh, he's there. And then me. And I don't know anyone and, other than him. And it's just awkward. And finally, the manager, I go to the manager, I said, I'm walking out of here. He goes, okay, David, just do me a favor. Well, I'm sorry. First, they told me shake Van's hand. And he took an egg roll and <laughs> shook my hand with grease uh, and then ran away from me. And then he goes, Man I go to the manager. I'm leaving. This is ridiculous. He goes, okay, no, no, no. Go in the hallway where he was now talking to Georgie Fame, the great British musician who was in his band at the time. He goes, just walk back and forth in front of Van. Let him get comfortable with you. <laughs> and I'm what, I was like, do you want me to lift my hind leg and see if it will mount me? I don't understand this. So I did. I walked back and forth to absolutely no reaction. And I, again, I'm beginning to walk out and Peter Wolf, thank God, goes, no, 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 David, David, I'll, I'll, I'll make this work. I'll make this work. He goes, Van, you got to talk to David. He's cool. I know him. He's cool. He goes, all right, we'll talk. And he goes, we'll have lunch tomorrow. So we found a restaurant in Cambridge that Van liked from the old days when he lived in Boston. We rented out a whole back room. We briefed the staff not to look at him or do anything wrong. And the photographer, a very famous photographer who was supposed to take the photo, was there and was supposed to just, you know, grab a moment with him after our interview. I sat down. I started to ask my first question. And I said, when you, and he got up and ran out of the restaurant. And he ran through Harvard Square. And I, at a certain point, said, I don't care if he's a genius and a poet. He's being fucking rude beyond belief. And I chased him. I grabbed my notebook, my tape recorder at that point. It wouldn't have been an iPhone. And I just went through Harvard Square and he ducked into a coffee shop. And I ducked into the coffee shop like nothing had happened. And the photographer was outside, like trying to get a picture of the two of us talking and finally did some treatment on it and made it look like a photo. But in any case, I started to ask him, I had, and I'm not a great, I, I used to be more of a preparer. Now I've, I've done enough of this that I think I know what I'm doing generally. And I like to have the conversation. But at that point, I had a hundred questions because I knew how crazy Van could be. How did the coffee shop have bananas? <laughs> exactly. I, this I don't remember. Uh, the first question I asked was, when you, and he goes, I don't talk about my personal life. And I was like, okay, this is because it was going to be a question about his childhood. I go, okay, I flip the thing to <laughs> something that doesn't begin with the word you. And I say, on your album, he goes, I don't talk about my work. <laughs> and I was, okay, and I flipped over. That's a hundred questions gone. There's nothing that isn't the personal or the work. There's really, I don't know what else to go to. And I finally said, I'm dealing with someone who's crazy. So what would a psychiatrist say? And I realized, let's talk about why he doesn't want to talk to me. And that was, I said, can you just tell me why you don't want to talk to me? And that interested him. He was very interested to tell me what, why he didn't want to converse with me at all. And then that led us into a conversation, which was a pretty good conversation, pretty interesting, pretty honest, because, you know, there's a certain, and I have to say, for all the people who've kissed my ass, you know, I loved having someone who was so absolutely dismissive of the process. And I had years later, I'll keep name dropping, Bob Dylan, my real hero. I had one of the most amazingly insightful moments ever with him. After the Tribute to Heroes aired, I got a call that he wanted to meet with me. He had an idea to pitch me. It was to write a treatment for something for Bob Dylan, who my son, my older son, who you did not meet, 
is named after. I mean, he is the guy who made me want to write, who changed my world, think, my hero. How does that go with your wife when she's going through all the labor, she has the baby, she's sitting there with the baby on her chest, and you say, you know, listen, honey, I was thinking about naming the child after uh, Bob. I don't get the first name. I get the middle name. You'll notice I'm, oh. I know my, I'm in second position as, <laughs> as, as you as a manager would understand. I only get the middle name. And by the way, she has right of refusal on the middle name. So Andrew is, my older son is Andrew Dillon. My younger uh, son, Alec, who you met and who you were so lovely to, uh, I wanted to name him Alec Miles for Miles Davis. And she said, absolutely not. So I gave him Scott for Scott Fitzgerald, who I like very much, but I couldn't get, you know, I, I don't even get the second name, really. Uh, oh, in, in any case, Bob Dylan, he's such a road warrior that we were meeting in L.A. in a hotel room. Even though he lives here, has a home here, he still was like living in a hotel. And uh, I was in his room because he was doing an interview, and he came, ironically, with Rolling Stone. And I'm to have this meeting with him, which ended up being a three-hour meeting that I'll never forget. The greatest three hours of my life. Crazy, inspiring, mind, life-changing. But in any case, he walked in, and the first thing he went to, said to me, he goes, ah, David, fucking interviews. And I realized my, my whole life as a journalist sort of passed before my eyes because, and I, I went, what do you mean? He goes, oh, people still ask me why I went electric. How fucking interesting. <laughs> and you realize how life is, and this is actually, I think, the key in what I do writing for television and certainly as an, an interviewer, is you have to think not from your fan perspective or your growing up looking at their album covers, but think about the, what the world is from their point of view. And Bob Dylan could not be less interested in revisiting the 10 questions that are on every, in everyone's article. Like how many times for every record he's had to go out and people want to rehash going electric or going Christian or whatever it is, he, to an artist who is constantly interested in the now and living in the now, it's the worst thing. And like I've got, having gotten to know a couple Beatles. It's the same thing. It's like, it would really interesting is I remember years ago, I haven't let you speak, have I? Uh, but years ago, that is the most pleasing thing <laughs> to my audience. Um, I remember years ago when I first got to know Ringo Starr, he called once and call, uh, call waiting went off and he goes, are you going to get that? And I went, no, I never take call waiting on a beetle. It's just as a <laughs> joke. And he goes, ex beetle. Like he was mad at me. And I was like, fuck you. You're not an ex-Beatle. I said, you're a Beatle for, it's like president. That's a, that's a title you can't get away from that. And it's really, I have to say, it was really nice for me as a guy who loves the Beatles like everybody else on, in other words, an earthling. Uh, it was nice for me to like work with Paul and Ringo on the Beatle Grammy tribute we did because I've watched them, you know, in, and I don't know Paul as well, uh, but I've watched them get more comfortable with their past because there were times when, they were annoyed by people coming at them with the same questions. So now that I've dropped all those names, I'll shut up. Oh, the Van Morrison was, the crazy part was the article came out and the manager had died because Van probably drove him nuts. I mean, Van's not easy. Uh, a lot of wear and tear uh, and a genius still. I'm a major, major fan. But, uh, you know, the next manager called me when he put out his next record I get to write some liner notes for some special edition of hymns of the silence it's probably on that list and he goes uh, van wanted me to ask you to write some liner notes and i said why would he ask me he goes he said you guys get along really well and i was like oh boy <laughs> that's getting along really well i can imagine about your bad uh, interactions and even a couple years ago he came around and did astral weeks and 
uh, we spoke again, and it was great because it's like if someone, it, you know, it, I get to, I have, I have not, I am not probably the richest guy you've had on the show, but uh, and I'm not the certainly not the most famous, but I definitely feel like, and now I see it through my kids' eyes, like I have gotten to know virtually every hero I've ever had, like, and even the ones I didn't in weird ways, I've gotten to work in a way to honor them. So I've had the chance to pay back in, 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 in the best way I could, like everybody, whoever moved me. And like, oh, and you mentioned uh, one more story. You mentioned like Sinatra in the liner notes. And like, that's just an example of how your life gets tied up with these people in interesting ways. Like uh, I bought my wife our engagement ring with the money, which was a pretty great payday for writing the liner notes to Sinatra's duets record. I said, okay, that's, I think that's the story I can always tell is Frank Sinatra bought you this for ring. For those of you who don't know who are living under a rock, that was one of the most amazing albums because Sinatra, when he was like, I think 78 years old or something, decided to do an album with the relevant rock stars and musicians of that time. Yeah, no, it was crazy. It was literally like around the week when I moved here, I had never driven in New York. And when Rolling Stone moved me out here, I had a, they, they basically got me a driving teacher and said, Jan said, you're, I'm moving you out there because I'd been out here. I came out here for one story to do a cover story on Joni Mitchell or a feature on Joni Mitchell. Then they said, no, no, we need a cover story on Winona Ryder. This is how long ago this is. And then Sinead O'Connor did something, which she was always doing something. And they said, do another cover story. So I was out here for three weeks. And Jan said, why don't you just stay there and be like the West Coast bureau chief, which is my life changed that moment. Uh, but Frank Sinatra, you know, around that time, I didn't have any friends other than rock stars who would take pity on me. Like I would spend Christmas, that first Christmas with like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers or actually Tom Petty and, and one Heartbreaker. He didn't even invite the other Heartbreakers, <laughs> which was another lesson about how bands uh, exist. But he invited you. Well, it was. Uh, I remember that incredibly well because that was my only actual meeting with George Harrison and George was there and Jeff Lynn was there. and. Uh, there was a gift exchange and I got Tom in the gift exchange. I went out and bought a life magazine of the Beatles, knowing what a Beatles fan he was, not knowing that a Beatle would be at the actual party. And then we're sitting on the couch doing the gift exchange and he didn't make that same mistake again uh, no, as you no. were doing it. No, okay. no. And he, uh, but George sat next to me and when Tom opened up the life magazine with the Beatles, he turned to me and went, Oh yeah, the fabs. I remember them. And I just thought, Oh my God, this is, he's as charming as like a hard day's night moment. And, uh, I was glad because, you know, years later, like Ringo had suggested I talk to him. And there was one day when I was supposed to fly to his home in England. And that was right around the time he got attacked. And I never got to spend other than that one evening with him, one Christmas. And he's one of my heroes, too. So I, I did get to I've been fortunate that way. Tell me somebody who's escaped your grasp, somebody who you've always wanted to interview, you've always wanted to meet. And all through your career, it just never happened, and you still haven't made it happen yet. There is no one alive that I can say that that's true of. They're the closest, and it's not like I am not just, I'm fascinated by Elvis, but I'm not, uh, he's, I'm more of a, I mean, I grew up in the 70s, which is the weird thing, having been on that 60s series and now the 70s, is that I'm a child of the 70s, so. I grew up like on the raspberries and ELO and then worked my way back to the Beatles and became this obsessive fan. But I'm fascinated with rock history. So 
the one guy I would have loved to talk to because no one ever did a really in-depth interview in the kind of modern way was Elvis. And that was impossible because he died when I was in summer camp. But when I moved out here to LA, I didn't have any friends, as I was saying. So I started driving to Vegas to learn how to drive and also to fill up my weekends. And I would go see Sinatra, which is how Frank heard about this Rolling Stone journalist who was coming to his shows. And that's why he asked me to do the liner notes for duets, which changed my life. Oh, I'm sorry. And the other story about that, before I forget, is that just to show you how meaningful these things can end up being, when my dad was dying, you know, years ago, four or five years ago, actually it's more, oh God. But on his, I had mentioned, my dad worshiped Sinatra. That was probably the first awareness I had of someone being passionate about music was he had every Sinatra record and a couple Beatles records. And, but I remember he loved Sinatra and he would play my way over and over again to sort of take himself out of, he was in business. And like, I remember when he was starting his own business, which ended up being very successful, but when it was having rough times, he would play my way to sort of urge him on. And so I mentioned him in the first paragraph of these Frank Sinatra liner notes. And on his, in his, on his deathbed, he didn't say anything to me about it, but the nurse came in that day and she goes, what was this about Frank Sinatra? He said, you mentioned him uh, and it made his life that he had a son who meant, and I, I thought that's so amazing that like that sentence, like, you know, 15, 10 years earlier would mean that was one of his final thoughts. And of course the problem was my mom, uh, who was div long divorced from him, immediately said, why am I not on any liner notes? So I had to <laughs> force her into a Neil Diamond liner note just for that, so that she would leave me alone. I'm sorry, we've now I've name dropped everyone. You just completely digressed into the absolute. Into the void. Void. That is my life. That is your life. When you hear a song, do you know immediately the first time you hear it, this is going to stand the test of time, or you don't know? If I had... Those exact years, I probably would have been in a different aspect of the business. I think I have good ears. I have one example of when I believe I had great ears, which was I moved here, as I told you, like I think 91 February, I think is when I moved here. And Jan asked me to go to all the most important people in the record industry. And as he put it, have them buy you lunch. I was like, you mean I should invite them to lunch? He goes, no, no, have them invite you to lunch so that I wouldn't be paying for 41 lunches with the 41 most powerful people in L.A. And he actually cared about that. He actually cared about lunch expenses. The largest rock and roll magazine in the history of the world, and he's caring about the lunches. Yes. Why? Uh, I, you know, no, listen. He, it was, I think it was a little joke for him. Okay. But I think he knew I would be, at this point, the record industry was so rich that it, I would be wined and dined to a certain extent okay. when I got here. But one of the places I went was Geffen Records, and uh, I went over and met with a guy named Gary Gersh, who a great A&R guy and later a manager and stuff. And, uh, but Gary, I believe he would tell you, I was one of the first three or four people to hear Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana. And when he played it for me, it was like the third, th I remember he played me a band called the Freewheelers, who I really liked, who people don't really remember. Uh, a Maria McKee solo song, maybe a Robbie Robertson solo song. And then he played me Nirvana. And I think he told me years later, he goes, you said, holy crap, that's a hit. That's a hit song by Nirvana, who were, you know, sort of a indie cool uh, thing. And he goes, you were the first person to tell me it was a hit song, which I don't know if that's true. 
But I realized, I talked to Dave Grohl about this at the Grammys uh, this year or last year. I was like, the reason I thought that, I only realized years later, was that it has the exact riff. You mentioned Boston. It has the, Smells Like Teen Spirit has just enough of the guitar riff from More Than a Feeling that it had that echo for me. And I believe that sort of, like Nirvana changed the world, but part of it is they nicked just enough from Boston, the other opposite end of the musical world, to just have that sort of, that radio guys could go, there's something in there that I, they, they could hear. And they could hear the revolution, but it, it helps when the revolution comes with a hook from Boston. I feel really, really great right now because on the dining room table in my house, is the first album that my sons at 10 and 11 bought. Album, yes. not CD, not yeah. digital. It's the physical album. They mm -hmm. were in a guitar center. Yeah. And Nirvana, never mind, with the baby in the pool. <laughs> oh, the greatest. No, it's, it's still great. And that's on the dining room table, the first album they buy. I said, how do you know to buy this? You don't even know. Daddy, come on. Oh, yeah. no, I now, my younger son, who you met, Alec, and I, now our bonding time is often over vinyl because for him it's cutting-edge cool, and for me it's a nice nostalgic thing, and I can plot so you had something records. to do your coke off of. I, would, I, I only did drugs three times, and it was only for professional reasons. It's, I've never been interested in drugs. Can you define professional reasons? When, when a member of Guns N' Roses or Skid Row said, you either get high or you have to get out of this room thinking that I would then not say that they were high in the article, which of course I would. I just, no one gives a shit if I'm high. That's true. When you mentioned the Nirvana of uh, Boston, I flash back to a place you had, I, I, from hearing all the stories, you were the man who took over Aspen Comedy Festival and made it, you know, changed the revolution well, from the within. Montreal Festival. You're like the I... Nirvana of the, uh, of the festivals. But I was once at the I'd Aspen. I'd rather be Nirvana. Yeah, I was once at the Aspen Comedy Festival. This is a great, well, I'll, I hate when people say this is great. This is a shitty story, but I'll tell it anyway. I've been asked by John Favreau and Vince Vaughn and Doug Lyman to host the Swingers For reunion. those of you who don't know, Doug Lyman was the director of Swingers, and yes. that changed his life forever. Yeah, for, yeah. Made the movie for about $250,000, right. and the rest is history. No, and uh, I, think, I think the only reason I was asked to do it, because I'd done like with Phil Rosenthal, our mutual buddy. I should say, you're here sitting across from me. Because Phil Rosenthal said to me at lunch the other day, how come David hasn't done the podcast? And you got I, a strict I, no Jew policy, and I respect that. I don't even know what I said. I'm paraphrasing, but I think I said something like, I, I don't know. But that's going to change. Oh, no. Well, thank you. Oh, but so I'm at the Aspen Comedy Festival, I think because I'd written the Friends books and gotten to know Aniston enough that she was then dating Vince Vaughn. So he, I think she told him, get that guy, David Wilde, to do the, host the reunion. In any case, I'm in the upstairs in that hotel. You remember that hotel in Aspen? Mm -hmm, beautiful. Where they used to do that? It had terrible phone reception because of the mountains. And uh, I, I got a call from Tom Schultz of Boston. And he ended up going, he, what had happened was he put out, he had had a feud for decades with the record company. And he read somewhere that the record company was putting out, reissuing the Boston albums. And he hated everything about it, except they sent him the essay, and he liked the essay. He thought, okay, this essay is good, so he goes, I want to talk to this guy and maybe give him some quotes. So he called me, and I couldn't hear him, we, and I mentioned the Nirvana thing to him, 
But at a certain point, I said, I have to go. I'm supposed to moderate this swingers re reunion. And I think I said Vince Vaughn and all this, but I think that was lost on him so that a couple of days later, I got a call from Sony Re Columbia Records uh, Legacy saying, Tom called. He said he really enjoyed talking to you, but he's a little freaked out by your lifestyle. And I'm like, what's that? He goes, he said you were just... You were doing a swingers event? <laughs> and I said, I wish my life were that interesting that I would be doing that kind of swingers event. Yeah, I'm doing the MBA swingers yeah. event. Oh, man. So let's, if you don't mind, I'd like to do something. I'd like to go way, way back if you don't mind. Is sure. that okay? Yeah. All right. I would like to basically document your life from circumcision until now. You're assuming circumcision. I am assuming because yeah. a nice Jewish MBA would never go out with you if you weren't <laughs> circumcised. Where did you grow up? What was happening? What was the socioeconomic situation? Your father, mom, were they into this kind of stuff? Were they not? And then what was the first inspiration to be in this crazy, wacky, name-dropping business of yours where you've been on Corolla 101 times and I've been on once? My mom was my first name I dropped, actually. I think I put that <laughs> in a book I wrote. Uh, I, was born in I was born in New York City, grew up I guess that for a year or so in the village where my parents were, but then they moved to Tenafly, New Jersey, the mean streets of Tenafly, New Jersey. <laughs> it's actually not, it's, they're, so, they're so not mean. It was, I grew up a upper middle class Jewish kid, spoiled, but the, uh, in Tenafly, New Jersey is a town that maybe Barry would be deep enough in his show business uh, passion to remember this. My favorite thing about Tenafly, New Jersey, which was literally white, uh, the only black neighbor I had was George Benson. Once he got a hit song, Reason, he moved it down the block. <laughs> but it was a lily white town. But there was a black cop show for a very brief period called Tenafly because it sounded a little like Superfly. And so I always, as a kid, I thought that was the coolest thing in the world that we were, uh, there was a black cop show named Tenafly. Uh, <laughs> but I grew up in Tenafly, spoiled. But once my parents split up when I was, you know, in middle school, I was sort of, that's the way I was, it was dealt with was I was sort of. Yes. All right. So you're in middle school. Were your parents arguing as you grew up? Did you hear these bites in the house or you just one day your mom came home and said, listen, your dad's not here anymore. He moved out. No, uh, I was well aware that there was problems. It was. Uh, well, how were you well aware? Like what happened? Well, I heard arguments, but it was also like my parents were, uh, my dad is no longer around. My mom still is. I, I put it this way. My dad was a businessman, but also very artistic. And uh, what did he do? Uh, he ran a company called the Wild Company in the beauty cosmetic world, which was a lot of my first exposure to celebrity. My first names to drop were because of him. Like he literally, he, he flew first class and traveled a lot, but he would have to submit. So he was such a good dad. He would make sure I saw him. So he would have like, I would have a car take me to the airport to meet him so we could have more time with me. This is the way I tried to take my kids to Corolla and wherever I go. I just like to grab time with them wherever it's possible. So I would literally, my childhood memories are of him getting off planes, introducing me to baseball players I loved, Liza Minnelli. You know, I remember like meeting tons of people with him because he was gregarious uh, and he was sort of, to this day, at the Grammys every year, I will have someone come up to me and like uh, the road manager for a really cool rock band. I'm trying to remember who it was. Was it Green Day or like a couple of years ago, the road manager came up to me and said, is your dad Stanley Wilde? And I was like, yeah. He goes, 
your dad was the best boss I ever had. He was the nicest man I ever knew. He changed my life. And it happens to this day. There's people who I meet who he touched in his world, but his world, and even like uh, we did the Stevie Wonder Grammy tribute last year, and I'm a Gladys Knight fanatic and have been since I was a kid. I've always loved Gladys Knight. I've loved soul music. And Gladys Knight, uh, my first celebrity was my dad being asked to consult with her on her shampoo called Knight. And he had a meeting with her, but it was like on a weekend and he didn't want to not see one of the kids. So he took me in and I was in the meeting with Gladys Knight, met Gladys Knight. How old were you? I was probably nine, nine or 10. And I already, already loved music. It was everything to me. And he, my parents divorced because my dad wrote, both were good writers. Interesting. My dad was a businessman, but really great writer, but very much like Hemingway. And my mom was a really much more sort of long sentence, elegant writer, a teacher. She wrote like Fitzgerald, but ultimately like Fitzgerald and Hemingway, they ended up hating each other. This is interesting because yeah. I always look at these moments that happen. I consider you an artist. I hope you don't mind me saying this. I, I wish it were so. Okay, I'll, I'll take it. You, you will yeah. take it, and you'll take it gladly. Yes. And a lot of times we talk about how these moments in people's lives where they just get the shit kicked out of them and something happens that they can't control. Right. And divorce is one of those things that just takes you out by the knees as a kid and you have no control over it and you're basically witnessing a car accident but you're in the car oh yeah no no it it shaped me uh i think what's weird is this is an argument i've had with i've talked about this with phil i've talked about this with my wife endlessly it, my kids who you met i've grew we have two great kids but they've grown up in the private school la world as coddled you know it's like they think you know, suffering families are like where, where no one's famous. You know, it's like they've gone to a school where every, I am the least well-known parent at the school where they go. And so you think, what is best for a person? My dad had a horrible childhood. He did not have a father. He moved from address to address when the rent was due. And yet he was this incredibly strong man and, and huge success in his business world. And I think now, like, what is best for a person? And I think the being spoiled part was probably not that good for me, and I pay the price in certain ways for that. But I think having, dealing with a lot of pain in that sort of, because they had a really long, I remember at some point my brother, who's a lawyer, said it was the longest divorce in New Jersey history. It was like, went on for decades. It was just horrible. It was a War of the Roses type scenario. But I think in a weird way, experiencing strong emotion made me fall in love with music, which was going on at that time. It made me feel things. It made me, you know, be very sensitive to emotional expressions in writing and in music. I think it made me feel things at an earlier age than normally I would have. So there's like benefits to everything that, you know, for whatever depression there was, you know, depressing moments, there was probably a lot came out of it that made me who I am. So, but my kids have not you know, they're, they're, the poor kids have had parents who stayed together. It's rough. They don't have, uh, but I, again, I'm not sure. I think a little suffering is probably a good thing for someone. And I know from listening to the podcast, like the things you've been through, the big traumas, I think the horrible part is I think ultimately our traumas deepen us and they don't, you know, if it doesn't kill you, it does make you stronger. I think to myself, when I was eight years old, I kept my own schedule. 
I rode my bicycle a mile to practice, a mile back. I rode to the games. I was responsible for washing my uniform, getting it all done. My mother never came to a game. Right. I had to keep track of every single thing at eight years old and get myself there on a bicycle. That's the thing that's missing of our kids. They don't have the independence that we have, and you wonder, are they going to have the resources and the emotional strength to deal with the things that you've dealt with? Uh, listen, Would your yeah. son, if he was doing the same thing you did in his career, knowing the makeup that he has and how he's been raised, would he chase Van Morrison through Harvard Square into a coffee shop? That question, or would he give up? It, it, that question plagues me. And I, I, listen, I'm so lucky. Like my older son, who I just yesterday got his first feature article for, he's at Berkeley, and he's writing for the college paper and studying math, which I can't add. So we got clearly <laughs> my wife's uh, statistics. It's like uh, my wife and I, we got the best of both worlds with our kids. But I think about that all the time. And I... Like you look at that list of all the things I will do, and I think it is motivated a lot by, and maybe even name dropping, it's, it's all motivated by like this restlessness that I've had since youth because I'm maybe in essence running from pain. You know, I like to chase the things that I feel good about because I don't think about any of the original, the original sin, the original hurt. And I had the experience of last year, I was asked, I've been asked for many times to go back and speak at my, that Loomis Chafee, the prep school, which saved my life. When my parents' divorce went really wrong, I had a counselor, thank God, at a public school in New Jersey, in Tenafly, who said, uh, David's really bright, and he's not going to be able to get into a college, because it's like my sophomore year. He said, he is falling apart. You need to get him out of here. You need to, like, it's like Vietnam. Get him, drop him, airdrop him anywhere else. And I went to this prep school, and I had not been back since. I had not thought about it. I don't really, my kids, they always have to talk to my brother uh, to get, or my sister to get stories about my childhood. I don't even think about it. I, I sort of run from it. Then, but what happened was I was supposed to be going back to uh, do a, with Al Gore, a live earth special that I was booked to do in New York. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be, an hour away, I'll go and, you know, on their dime, I'll go to, you know, uh, speak at my school at the reunion. And of course, the Al Gore event got canceled. And all of a sudden, it's like, I'm committed to doing this. And it was the most amazing experience of my life, because as a guy who's never gone to a reunion of anything ever, who never looks back, I'm committed to doing it. And I, I remember getting rent and driving a car from New York to the school and I'm pulling off at the exit that says Loomis Chafee, and I realized this is the exact spot I remembered my dad looking at me, like, like nerve, and I was so scared because I was being, I was leaving home at like whatever age it was, 15, you know, for good, and, but I realized I'm now in the passenger, I'm driving, and he's not around anymore, and I, I'm not that much of a crier, but I started weeping, like, as I'm pulling into the school, I'm just, in, it was like every memory I'd avoided having for all these years, I just couldn't stop crying. I ended up giving this speech, and it was the most beautiful moment I'll ever have. And it was actually better because my wife and my son had just graduated high school, my older son, the day before. So they, they were all there. I couldn't, I was alone. But I ended up, my teacher who changed my life, who was 
15 years retired, came from Florida to hear me speak. My, my prep school girlfriend showed up and was as beautiful as she was then. And we had the most amazing time walking around with her, meeting her husband. It was just, it was great for, for people who have issues in their past and don't want to look back. Looking back can be so profound. And I, so that's why it's like, I'm happy to retracing liner notes. It's easy, but like retracing bad childhood stuff is not as easy. Tell me a song when you first heard it that it made you cry. Now, when I interviewed Joel Gallen, I yep. didn't ask him that question, but I asked him how he could direct the Tribute. 2001 Tribute to Heroes when he's watching these stories and he's watching these musicians. And when you're doing a live broadcast and you're a director in a booth, for those of you who don't know, you have the whole television set up. It is a piece of, sometimes there's masking tape with the cameraman's name on it, one. Joe one, Harry two, whatever. And there's a guy next to you switching and the director, Joel, would be like, one, one, two, two, and whatever. And so he yes. told me that the thing that moved him the most was Imagine, sung by Neil Young. Neil Young. Yeah, you know, what's funny is I was standing three feet behind him in that room, in the control room. It was at CBS uh, in Beverly. And I'll, I'll tell you just, uh, you know, the part that, and again, it's so funny because Joel, I just worked with him a week or two ago on the Independent Spirit Awards. You had him on and it was great. Uh, Joel, I, Joel basically started me in TV. Uh, there's a couple people who deserve credit or blame for that, but he's the one who we met on a Rolling Stone TV special. And he goes, you're funny, you should write jokes. And I wrote jokes for a show. And that's how my, I was never gonna become a TV writer and my whole life shifted on that Joel. So and a guy named uh, Larry Salters and Ken Ehrlich, who then asked me to do the Grammys and the tribute, getting nominated for an Emmy. All of a sudden, people called me. So my life sort of shifted on that. But I, I just worked with Joel for the first time in years. And Ken Ehrlich, just for those of you who don't know, he's like to the Grammys what Joel had been to the MTV Movie Awards or the Comedy Central Roast. Just, again, what we talked about in the cold open over and over again, being used over and over again when there's so many people you could use, so many people who would do it for less, and you just keep going back oh, to the same people see. like you. Oh, well, the funny thing is like, yeah, the Grammys, I'm at 15 years or whatever, but I'm going to the 90th birthday party of a guy named Walter Miller who directed the Grammys for 40 years, 40 years. And he brought me into the country CMAs, which are the big sort of country Grammys, uh, you know, more than a decade, much more than a decade ago. Uh, and he called me and he said, uh, uh, I just met him because he was a director and I was a writer of the Grammys, but we didn't interact as much because he was sort of in the truck uh, most of the time and not as a producer. And he goes, I think I'm going to bring you down to Nashville to write the CMAs. And I go, don't you have a writer? He goes, yeah, I've had a guy for 35 years, <laughs> but I think I got to make a change. And I'm like, 35 years? Like, in this world, Barry would know better than anyone. That's like insane. But like, I will say, I learned by like Ken Ehrlich, uh, this guy, Walter Miller, they're the guys who taught me my, like how to stay in this business, which is like years ago, after my probably third or fourth year, I'd had an Emmy nomination. I sort of was getting known as Mr. Like Specials. I was down there in Nashville thinking, I know how to do this. I've done it three times. And then I looked at the guy, Walter Miller, who had done it 30 times, and he was sweating every decision. Everything mattered to him. And I was like, how arrogant am I that I think I cannot give a shit? I have to, you know, you can never stop giving a shit. And 
you can never, especially in the world of live TV, which is where I spent a lot of my time in the world of live TV, you can never actually know what's going to happen. Like, you know, when we were doing the Grammys and Whitney Houston dies, and it's like, write a new monologue, you know, write a whole new show. Uh, that happens all the time, increasingly, because as TV ratings are declining, events are becoming, in a way, more important, but it means you have to respond in the moment. And all the successful people I've worked with, like, you know, we mentioned uh, Brad Paisley. Uh, you know, we do the CMAs, Carrie Underwood and Brad. We've done it for, you know, I guess five years together. The show's not till November. He's called me three times this week. Like, I'll be on a walk. And he go, and I got like 25,000 steps the other morning because he couldn't stop talking about an idea for November. And this is a guy, I'm like, Brad, where are you? He's like, I'm about to go on stage. Uh, he was to play, about to play a concert to 20,000 people in New England, I think, somewhere. But he can't stop thinking about ideas. Ken Ehrlich, who you just mentioned. Ken Ehrlich, just so you know, these producers for these shows have been doing it a lot. I was at the Grammys this year. It's like three minutes before the show starts. Ken Ehrlich walks out. with, Can you guys give me a microphone? Any other microphone? And he just gets on. Oh, so this is what's going to happen. Come, hey, everybody, come sit. You got to sit now. We got it th three minutes before we got to start the show. This is a live show. No anxiety, nothing. No, it doesn't change his shirt. Yeah, yeah come on, come on, honey. Get yeah, you sit sit there right there. How much time left? <sighs> oh, a minute and a half. Okay, so this is what's going to happen, everybody. We're going to do this. Uh, Taylor Swift is going to come out uh, this, this thing here, and we're going to start the show. And uh, yeah, come on, come on. You need to sit down. Yeah, we got about forty-five seconds left. So um, let's see. Is there anything else I need to say? Well, we're live. It's going to be a great show. And uh, uh, 30 seconds, Ken. But uh, as relaxed just... as that is, I will tell you, he called me today. He was like on the road with his wife and called me to say, and we have a big project that might be happening in a few weeks, another big project. But he said, I just had an idea for another thing. Can you think about this overnight and write me up some ideas for it? And I'm like, and he's, you know, he's older than I am. And he still cares more, you know, at least as much as I do, which that's the thing. You can't stop caring about this stuff. Tell me an artist that you looked at when you interviewed them and when you left the room, you said to yourself on the way home, I'm never going to see them again. They're going to die soon. I, just you saying that, this is not quite that exact story, but I'll, I just want to talk about Bowie a little bit because his passing was the hardest I've ever had to encounter because I had a weird, a weird connection with him. He's one of my favorites. Again, it's like, you know, I'm not, listen, I'm not that unusual. You know, Bob Dylan, you know, Stones, Beatles. I like those. I think they're all pretty good. Uh, but David Bowie, uh, I got to meet probably at the height of my career as a journalist and at the low point of his career as an artist when he was in a band called Tin Machine. And I was the, I am the only remaining fan of Tin Machine, including at least one or two guys in Tin Machine. And, uh, but we got, he, he did things like, he took me to uh, Chandara the first time. He took me to, what's the best hot dog in LA on La Brea? What is that? Pink's? Pink's. He introduced me to a lot of restaurants. He bought me a pig fetus in Indonesia and tried to send it to me and it got turned away at customs. But, and then in the years, so it's between like 94 and 2004 or five, whenever he had his heart incident, I would write things for him, like his bio for albums and Q and A's with him. And I would talk to him fairly regularly. But the moment he got, he had that brush, 
he sort of cut out of his career in a traditional way. He eventually went back to working, but he didn't do you publicity. You said got out of that brush. What does that mean? I mean when he, sorry, when he, got, when he survived the heart incident. Okay. Because I think basically he had a heart attack uh, on stage and basically decided, I'm not going to... I'm, he sort of left music for a while, then returned to it, but didn't do anything with the media. He just made the art and loved his family. So I never spoke to him between... 2005 in the end and I had been friendly with him you know and so when he left I'm, and I that's my personality I would never I don't usually reach out to people I just have this crazy life where people ask me to do certain things so you know my life is sort of based on when they need me it's not based on when I need them in fact that's a hard thing for me now with uh, that thing you mentioned with Phil and I trying to do the show there's like one star I want to do something and it's hard for me to reach out to people because I am so not used to asking them for a favor. They're more used to asking. I get a lot of people calling me like, I'm walking on stage, give me a joke. Like I'll get that all the time. And it's, I love that, but I never would think to call someone and say, even like Bruce is playing here. I'm not calling John Lando and asking for a ticket because no one actually offered me a ticket this time. So I would never, it's just the way I'm oriented. When's the last time you ever asked for a ticket to a show? Well, through Twitter at Wild About Music, I will tweet with people. Like my wife and I were home the other uh, weekend and I had been working so crazily we couldn't do anything. And uh, I think both of our kids, my older son is at college now and my younger son had it, you know, was going out. So I said, looked at what was playing. and It was like a band I like, the Jim Blossoms, uh, who were our band when we first started dating. We would listen to a lot of their first their second record actually and first and second record and they were playing in the neighborhood so i tweeted uh one of the guys and said hey can i come tonight and he goes yes so i have i will do that through twitter it's intimate i'll i'll uh i'll ask people that way twitter and intimate don't go together twitter is very intimate for me i i love twitter i don't i have to do facebook uh they they sort of made me for the 60s 70s to do some sort of press thing I don't get Facebook. I love Twitter. I do. I, I feel it's I, records have happened because of people I've put together on Twitter, artists who I tweet with. Uh, I find it really intimate. I can't explain why. It's as intimate as I want to be. Got it. So take our audience through how you got that first huge break in this business that took you to the next level and the first interview that you ever had where you said to yourself, I'm never doing anything else again. My first interview was actually way before any of this when I was in middle school, uh, maybe freshman year high school. In middle school, I wrote a record column. And in high school, uh, when George, I knocked on George Benson's door, who was down the block, and said, can I interview you? And that was my first interview. But my real career was made, I got very lucky. I mean, which is the best advice is to get really lucky. And for me, it was uh, a guy was visiting at Cornell as a professor my junior year named w William Kennedy. And he wrote a book called Ironweed, which is one of the best American novels ever written. It won the Pulitzer the year I was with him. I was in his writing class. He somehow confused me for a good writer. And he is really the reason I have a career because. I had interned the previous summer at a magazine called The Movies, working for an editor named David Hershey, who is now well-known as a book editor. I don't know if you've ever dealt with him. Harper Collins, a lot of big, big books. But 
uh, he called me when, when the Pulitzer came out and my teacher had won. He said, I want your, writer, your teacher to write for me at uh, Esquire. And I said, that's good because I want to be, I want to work at Esquire. And so I went right from my last final with this guy, William Kennedy, to editing him at Esquire. And I it was at first as an unpaid intern for two months. And I, this is my, I know we'll get to advice for people. My advice is if you are in the realm of what you, where you want to be, do anything that you have to do. Say, like I had a, the editor-in-chief of Esquire when I was brought in to meet him, Lee Eisenberg, said to me, what would you be willing to do here? And I said, I will write, I will get you tennis balls. And it turned out, he, I guess he was a tennis player, I'm a tennis player, and so we bonded on tennis. He decided he liked me, he hired me as an intern unpaid for two months. The first intern they had had since Jodie Foster was hired so that she would write about Mark David Chapman. So they had not had an editor in years, uh, an intern in years and years, but working at Esquire, I got to a year later uh, with a woman named Lisa Bain, we started a record column, and because it was Esquire, I was immediately editing like Updike was writing record reviews. Uh, all sorts of major writers were writing record reviews. And Jan Wenner saw that. And he goes, who's this guy at Rolling Stone? I mean, at Esquire. And that's how I got to Rolling Stone. He brought me over, offered me at a job at Us Magazine, which I did not want. And I actually had to turn down Jan, who was like a total hero to me. And then he got so pissed off that he got turned down. He goes, okay, why don't you work at Rolling Stone, which was my dream. The power of no. Yeah, and which I rarely have exercised since. Uh, but yeah, so I got to, uh, and it turned out just good timing. Uh, I didn't realize they were hiring me because they needed, the music editor was going to become the managing editor. They needed a music editor to oversee the coverage of the magazine. And so I went from being a new kid there to within a year or two being offered the music, at being the music editor of Rolling Stone, which was a great thing, but it also was, the problem was that was the most successful years of Rolling Stone in terms of how big the issues were. So I was editing 350 page issues and I was burning out in my first four years as an editor. And I realized I had never had the chance to be a writer. I would occasionally assign myself an article, but what eventually happened is I realized I wanna write. Uh, I don't wanna be saving everyone else's writing or hurting it, depending on what I, if I was any good or not. But eventually I said, can I write more? And that's why Jan ended up sending me out here to be the West Coast Bureau Chief which is how I met Joel and how I fell into TV. You talked about the moments you spent with your dad when he would get off a plane and he'd introduce you to Liza Minnelli or something like that. But something that a lot of people don't talk about and another thing that we never talk to our children enough about is the end of life and how you handle those moments because there's nothing more challenging and that brings you together as a man or a woman when you're getting off the elevator at a hospital and you're walking towards the room of a person you know is going to die and you have to get yourself together and make an impact, the kind of impact that you want to make because you don't know if that's going to be the last time you're going to see them. So take our audience through those moments when you were spending with your dad just the time that you and him had in those last Well, it was days. the time was infinitely complicated and not for him, for every one of us who loved him, which were many people, uh, by the fact that he had Alzheimer's. He was the smartest guy I ever met. Uh, he stayed young and agile until 
But the last few years with Alzheimer's, it's a trip that we don't even have enough time to get into how surreal it can get with having a guy that sharp not necessarily know what just happened in the last few minutes, but yet knowing everything from 40 years ago. There's The mind is a remarkable thing. For me, the I remember it was super surreal because actually, God, it's, it's almost eight. It's almost eight years ago because as he was in hospice and in different center hospitals and ultimately hospice, it was right as Obama was about to be uh, inaugurated. And I was working on the inauguration uh, and I remember having to leave him once. So I know it was, God, seven and a half years ago. Uh, he said, I just like such, I'm so, like I, I thought about it. I was watching some of the political stuff going on. I was thinking, how lucky I am. My parents weren't racist at all. And they taught me like not to be. And so it's like, I look at some of the racism I see in the culture now and I'm just like, I, it's it's heart heartbreaking, but I remember my dad saying, "No, you go help that president." It was, it was, I was heading up to the inauguration. He goes, "You go help that president. He's going to need help because people are he's going to encounter a lot of hate." And he was 100% right. But at the same time, then he would not remember what was going on. A minute later, it was uh, I, I have the around the same time. It was also uh, I remember. Every night before the Grammys, I sleep over down by the Staples Center, which is where we do it. And I always wake up with another line or a joke or something that I can use. Just It's like a weird thing that's always happened. I remember that year, I woke up the morning of the Grammys and I didn't have any line in my head. And then I thought, all of a sudden I realized, I know what I'm going to say at my dad's memorial. Because he had asked me, he was ill, very, very ill then. And he said, I want you to speak when I die. I want you to you have to get up there and say something. I, and I get that request fairly often. It's like, because uh, people think I'll be willing to, I th and I had Tom Petty years ago when one of my closest friends was uh, Howie Epstein, who was in the Heartbreakers. And he said, he called me once I was in Nashville. He goes, you got to fly back and do this memorial because no one else will have a joke that they can do at a memorial that'll work. So I, I remember doing that. But in any case, that day I woke up and I realized what I would want to say about my dad. And the thing that I'm amazed when you ask the question, it makes me think what I'm amazed by is my dad did not have a dad and yet he was a great dad. And when you see, like he never, he told me that he met his father once in a train station when he was going off to World War II that a man appeared and said he was his father. I don't even know if that's 100% true or that's a dream that he had. But, you know, other than that, he did not have a father and he had a crazy gypsy mother who was great and crazy. And he somehow managed to support his family. And it's just an amazing, he earned a scholarship to Cornell, which is probably the reason I got in and my brother got in. You know, he was an amazing guy. Uh, so, uh, but, oh, but watching him die, I just, the truth is like sort of what we were talking about with our kids. Like I, it's kind of the de-evolution of man. I, I know I'm not half the man he is. I think I'm a good dad because he was a great example of how to be a good dad. But he was, a, he was a great dad under a much more difficult circumstance. And I, yeah, that's what I think I said in my first sentence about him. I said, like, of all the things you accomplish in a life, like, what is the most impressive? And to me, there's nothing more impressive than a great father who didn't have one. Like, how do you, how do you pull that off? And that's what, that's, I think, is the great legacy of him for me. That's one of my number one goals in life is hopefully I can pull that off. You, but that's right. You know, and I, I, I think the other lesson, which you probably already learned with your kids, and this is something I try to 
model. I probably didn't do as good a job even as he did. He did not, like, he, he's the only man who ever fired me. Like, uh, I mean, <laughs> uh, he fired me from being in his office cleaner because I was so, I'm a slob beyond belief. I'm, I, I, he fired me multiple times. And I think he realized I should not pursue his dream as a businessman. And he, but he loved what I did. And he would take my articles from my middle school paper, from my college paper, and show them. People still to this day talk about, you know, uh, Ken Ehrlich, who you mentioned, uh, he, by coincidence, became very friendly neighbors with my dad's protege, who became this huge success in, the, in that industry. And at the Grammys, like a year ago, he's talked about, God, I remember when your dad showed me that article and that article and that article. So, uh, but what he did was he let me, he, he fired my passions. Like I remember there was a bookstore in Tenafly, New Jersey called Womraffs, I believe. And he, he said, you can charge any album and any book you want at this store anytime. He goes, I want you to, you love that. So you pursue that. And then when I was in college, I took that a little too far. <laughs> I started buying an album for because they had at the campus bookstore at Cornell, you could charge albums. And I think I might have uh, lost that privilege at a certain point. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention the name of an artist or somebody. Yeah. And the first thing that comes to mind, Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston, I, I didn't know her well, but I, as a journalist, I met her early on, and I remember thinking that she was like a princess. And, you know, she, her mom was a great singer and all this, but she was so beautiful. And then the last time I saw her was on the Grammys when she presented, uh, I think she introduced you to this, and she'd had such a rough time, and it was so sad. Uh, but like a lot of, what's weird is as you live, you get to sort of pay your respects. We did a Grammy tribute to her afterwards, and so I got to sort of work through my feelings for her. But she was, again, not... I remember when she died, the most vivid memory is uh, LL Cool J was hosting for the first time the Grammys. He was a friend of hers, and so was Ken Ehrlich. And uh, I had to call him up because he was sick that week, and he called me like at 4 p.m. and said, I'm going to go to bed. Are we locked and loaded on the script? And I said, uh, yeah, we're locked and loaded. An hour later, we're on this rehearsing some other act, <clears throat> and we get the message that Whitney had died. And so I had to go back and write the whole new open about her and send it to LL. Sent it to him around 10 o'clock. But the crazy part was I sent it to LL, and he called me back. He goes, I love it, but there's one thing missing. And I said, what's that? He goes, a prayer. And I went, LL, I don't write a lot of prayers. Uh, as a Jew, you don't usually get to write a lot of prayers. You read a few. And I said, you write me a prayer, and then I'll Jew it up. And that's what we did. And if you watch that moment on the Grammys, the day after she died, I find it so moving. You see, like, people, it became like a prayer service. And that's what the Tribute to Heroes experience was like that. It became a prayer service. Ray Charles. Ray Charles, uh, I, <laughs> I interviewed him in his studio and he's i don't ask for autographs much but i worship ray and i asked for his autograph and he said very reasonably fuck no how am i know it's how do i know it's not a check <laughs> and so <laughs> ray was great i had a few other encounters with him i remember after the article came out 
all the people who we mentioned in the article called me, like Michael Bolton and Steve Winwood, all these guys who were influenced by Ray Charles called me up, and they were just thrilled to be mentioned by Ray Charles. Billy Joel. Uh, talking about Jan Wenner, uh, I remember doing a cover story on Billy for Rolling Stone. It was a long day that involved between us having about 35 drinks and eight beers, and I had none of those. Uh, so by the end of the night, this is a true story. He will hate this. I hope he does not a listener. At the end of the night, uh, he's at my hotel, which is some crappy Holiday Inn in the island next to a police. Uh, it was a, like a police uh, training center because he would hire the police, I think in part so that when he got arrested for drunk driving, they would be nice to him. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> at the end of the night, it's like 3 a.m., and I realize he cannot drive home. And so I go to the front desk. I say, I need another room for Mr. Joel. They said, we're sold out. You'd have to stay in your room. And I had one bed. <laughs> and I said, good luck. And he drove home and he got home. You I didn't want feel, him staying in your room? I love him, but I did not want to share a bed with him. The only man who ever kissed couldn't me. Couldn't you sleep on the couch or something? You know what? I don't think I could have convinced Billy he couldn't have driven anyway. But he's, no, I'm a huge fan. He's the he's, only man that ever kissed you. Lou Reed. Oh, Lou Reed. Because I saved him a lot of money. We, I hosted a show on Bravo called Musicians. Yes, that's the one I talked about that I yeah. looked at, the one with Cheryl Crow. <laughs> and he was my first guest. And the, on the show, you could only have one other player with you. So you couldn't have your whole band. You could have like one or two people. Or none. Or none. Just do it solo. But he did it with his bass player, a great bass player, Fernando Saunders. And uh, after that, I guess, I didn't know this, but he started doing some dates with just a stripped-down musician or two on some kind of performances. And so years later, we were doing the Grammys, and the first award was supposed to be presented by Justin Timberlake, who I work with all the time, love. Uh, and we realized Justin was nominated. At the last second, someone realized... We can't have him present that award. He's nominated in the category. So we had to find presenters like an hour before the show. Got Dave Grohl, who's always been great. And this was early on in his sort of Foo Fighterdom. And we were in New York at the, it was our last time we did the show in New York. And I said, Lou Reed is here. So let's get Lou because he's a New York rock icon. So when I went up to talk to him, he grabbed me and kissed me on the lips and said, you saved me a fuckload of money, which he realized that's the way to make Lou Reed not always the easiest guy. That's how you make him happy. You save him a lot of money. Maybe you should have saved Van Morrison some money. I wouldn't want that kiss either. Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder is uh, easily in my, he's in my top two or three artists of all time. And he, uh, I have the unique experience of having, when Stevie appears on shows, I always write him to sing something a cappella. And Stevie tortures me, honors me by making me sing into his ear. So the way it works, he's not reading prompter. Like most people are reading a teleprompter. Stevie, for obvious reasons, unless he's really hiding something from us, cannot read prompter. So what, the way it works is I'm backstage with a microphone and he makes me read and often sing his part. So I have sung. So in other words, Stevie, I need to show how much of the song to sing. <clears throat> so I have sung Higher Ground. I have sung Ribbon in the Sky. I have sung for a Ray Charles tribute, I sang What I Say to Stevie Wonder, which you will never sound more white than when you are me 
singing to Stevie Wonder. Give our audience one bar of you singing something to Stevie Wonder. Uh, I really don't want to do that. Let's say, uh, uh, people, you know, like I'll do about that. That's as much as I'll do. But this year. That's all I get uh, is people. Uh, I've sung so many songs to Stevie, but this year he, uh, he did a, he appeared with pentatonics doing a whole number and then paid tribute to Maurice White. And he gave me, he pitied me and let me just do the speaking part. And he sang, he had another person sing for him. Thank God. And in fact, there was one show maybe with Joel where uh, I did Ray Charles and he's such a brilliant mimic. In addition to being a brilliant artist, he's funny. He's the most sincere, great guy. He's everything you'd want him to be. But at one point, Steve's also a great mimic. He imitates people. So there were people who watched the show of him doing Ray Charles and doing the speaking. And someone said, is Stevie Wonder imitating you? So he was like mimicking my voice, which is not in my mind very distinctive. But there were people who knew somehow that he was doing me, which was he was listening to me in his ear. And he just sort of is just responds. He's an amazing artist. Muhammad Ali. Phil and I shared an amazing moment with Muhammad Ali. This was at the tribute. There's so many stories with the tribute. One that involves my wife, the moment that Joel, the 9-11 was on a Tuesday, I believe. So Friday, I think Joel gets the call from the networks. He calls me in the evening to say he wants me to be the head writer for the Tribute to Heroes telethon, which we don't even know what it is at that point. My wife picks up the phone first, and she, we're all so emotional in those days. It was such a raw time for everyone. She says, very nice lady, very nice person. She said, this is a horrible idea. This is not about stars. This is not about show business. This is not about... And if you ever were to watch the show, as she was basically yelling at Joel and I, I wrote the open for Tom Hanks of that show, which if you look at it, that's what he's saying. And it was a great... I just was taking the note from her that what we were up against is like, this couldn't sound like show business. It could not sound like just another show because it was, in essence, a prayer service. It was like our town. It was not, it, and that guided the writing of it and that guided Joel and like the visuals of it. Uh, that, was a, that was a key moment to me. And, and, you know, now I get to work with Tom Hanks on the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. It's like these relationships that you always talk about they go forever. But I remember when I sent uh, the open to Hanks, he wanted one word changed, which I think I said something like, based on my wife's thing, I wrote, we are merely celebrities or we are merely stars or something. He was, you know, make it actors. He, like, he was right. He argued for a little more dignity. So I, I start writing the show. At a certain point, I call my friend Phil Rosenthal, who were just becoming friends, and say, Phil, I really need your help, especially because I was working with the greatest actors and some of the greatest stars of our time, but I'm not a, I'm, I think I'm an okay writer. I'm not a director. And I knew he could sort of knew that world better in terms of if they had questions about how to say things. So uh, he came and he, the first thing he said to me was, is there anything you really need to still say in this show? And I, re I said, I really think we need to say something about Islam. Because by weird coincidence, I had won the Muslim Public Policy Award as a Jewish guy with Cat Stevens the previous, that year, the actual 2001 Muzzy, as we call it, in the uh, Muslim Public Policy Award, the, the treasured Muzzy. Uh, and so we sat and wrote something for Will, it was for Will Smith to say about Ali, because at that point, Ali couldn't really speak for himself because of his illness, but he wanted to be a part of this. 
the crazy story that brings all of this full circle is so that ended up oh so we walk in and I'm sorry that day as we're about to film the show Muhammad Ali walks in and he does not look good he's you know it's he has medication and if it's not the right moment he is shaking and it's you know it's upsetting to see the champ not you know looking so sort of unhappy and pained by it but as he walked past Phil and I and specifically past Phil I'll never forget it he stopped he stopped shaking he pulled like he was going to punch phil and smiled the classic ali smile and it was like he was all of a sudden 40 years were gone and he was in playing with like howard cosell and it was i think phil will tell you that was one of the most magical moments we'll ever have cut to three years later joel calls again there's another tragedy i think it might have been katrina ali i get a call from if I'm remembering this correctly, Joel and George Clooney, it may have just been George Clooney, saying, Ali wants to be a part of this telethon. He wanted you to write something again for, and this time I think it was Chris Rock was going to read something for him while he stood there about this moment. This is where the parenting, it all comes into the same thing. That kid who you met, Alec, my son, I came home, I was writing some show in Santa Monica. I got home at like 8 o'clock, and I had to write something that night for Ali. As I walk in, my son is about to go to bed. He goes, Dad, I really need help with a paper. And I, you, this is the key moments in your life, I think, in our world, where I go, I wanted to say, I really can't. I have to write this thing for Muhammad Ali and George Clooney and Joel Gallon. Uh, and I just remember, and I was about to say that, which I don't rarely did, but I was, you know, it was sort of, you know, coming from Santa Monica, driving alone to the hills here could make you crazy. And I remember going, no, don't be, this is your son will remember this, that you didn't have time for him. So I said, okay, Alec, what do you need help with? True story. He says, I have to write a paper about Islam. And I went, okay, what do you have? And his first sentence was, there are, and I forget how many, there's like, there are eight precepts or four precepts in Islam, and they are blank, 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 and charity. And I went, Oh my God, that is what Ali should say. And so, in addition to working on his paper for them for 15, 20 minutes, we then wrote what Muhammad Ali would want us to say. And it was that exact thought. It was uh, Chris Rock in that show, I believe he goes, In my religion, there are f however many precepts, and one of them, and the most important to me is charity. And it talked about the role of charity, which was, of course, exactly what needed to be said. So, uh, so my little Jewish, you know, sixth grader then, fifth grader, fourth grader, wrote for Muhammad Ali uh, on that show. Incredible. And I remember Tom Hanks, who you mentioned, was on that show, and he, was, he heard about this. He goes, you got to tell people this. You got to make a... And I was like, I said, no one would believe it, but now I finally have a place to tell the story. Steven Tyler. Steven Tyler is sort of a friend. I see him all the time. He, uh, I, I've, I've seen him filmed things where he was nude, so I've seen every, I, I've known him very well. You've seen him filmed things? Yes, for a comedy bit. He got naked in the hotel room. I felt very uncomfortable. I feel inadequate in relation to him. But he, uh, I guess my favorite story about him that is a crazy one involves, uh, oh, I got two stories. Well, the story about him is that he called on Yom Kippur and said, David, I need you to come out to 
Northampton, Massachusetts, or wherever he was playing, uh, I want you to write a book about this chick I'm in love with, you, me and her, and it's about love. We're going to write a book about love, and it's going to be the book that's going to reinvent love, and you have to go now. And I looked at my wife, and I said, I am not going, Stephen. I am not leaving. And for a year or two, he gave me shit for like, how could you not leave? And I'm like, because that's why I'm still married, is because every time a rock star says, get on a plane, I did not leave on uh, Yom Kippur dinner. Steve Jobs. I did work for Apple in recent years, and I worked with Jimmy Iovine on a number of speeches and projects. And uh, so I've. Uh, Jimmy Iovine, now the head guy in charge of Apple Music. True story is however many years ago when Apple uh, iTunes was about to start, Jimmy called me. He goes, uh, Dave, you, a guy from Apple's going to call you. And I went, Really? A guy from Apple? He goes, Yeah, Steve Jobs. And even then, this is way before the book and everything and the movies, but even then it was like, oh yeah, a guy from Apple, you know? And they called and offered me to work for iTunes on, for them. And I had just started working on the Grammys and they said, you have to move up here right away. And I said no. And I turned down Steve to work for Steve Jobs on Apple. And my wife, when the book came out, I said, I cannot believe the money I did not make on whatever stock I would have gotten then. And she always went, you never would have lasted with him. He would have fired you in a minute. Like, having read the book about what he was like, she goes, he would have gotten rid of you right away. Cut to maybe a year ago, I'm with Jimmy at his house. He said, so matter-of-factly, as only Jimmy could, he goes, she doesn't know what she's talking about. He would have loved you and you'd be a wealthy, wealthy man. <laughs> like, I said, that's both a compliment and making me feel absolutely terrible. <laughs> Madonna. Madonna, uh, not, not one of the people I'm close to, but I overwhelmingly uh, great memory of when I first became the editor, music editor of Rolling Stone, I had an idea for a cover of a photo issue, which was, I said, you're the most photographed woman on earth. And she was then, and still probably one of the most. I said, so let's get a picture of you taking a picture of the audience. So it was a picture her Brits took of her with a camera, like taking a picture of the audience. So unannounced, she came into my office at Rolling Stone. I'm like sitting there. And by pure coincidence, I had a bootleg in New York in those days. There were like bootleg CDs, like you could buy at the train station when you were going to the Hamptons or something. And I had a copy of her most recent record in a bootleg form. So when she walked in, she noticed it. And I joked, I think I owe you a few bucks. And she did not smile, took it, took a picture of it, I think, and wrote down some information. And you knew she was going to get someone to, we were going to be sued for this. And she was going to get that money. And I just loved her drive and her uh, Madonna-ness. Prince. I'll never forget being in Paris for the opening of the Love Sexy Tour. Uh, it was, he went, he performed as he always did till like midnight. Then he had a party and on a little private little island like near Paris. I don't even know where that could be. And I was brought over to meet him with Kurt Loder, who had been at Rolling Stone and then was at MTV. And Kurt stepped on his foot. And Prince is not a great conversationalist regularly, but when you step on his foot and you're taller than him, which I'm not, I am actually barely, but uh, definitely Kurt was. But he did go, even though Kurt stepped on his foot, he goes, uh, I'm playing later if you want to come. <laughs> and uh, it was like three in the morning now. And I'm like, you're playing later? And he played on the Champs-Élysées at a club called, I think, La Bande Douche. And at six in the morning, the show was over. Mavis Staples, who I love 
still was in touring with him and she sang with him. But I remember that I always think that's maybe is the best show I ever went to. Certainly the coolest was leaving a Prince show at 6 a.m. and walking out to uh, Paris, you know, as sun, the sun rose. That's a, that was a good day at work. Amazing. Bruce Springsteen. Uh, my favorite memory sort of involves Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen one year at the Grammys where uh, they both were on the same show and Bob Dylan came in first and I'd written a very minimalist intro because what are you going to say about Bob Dylan? It was something like, ladies and gentlemen, the, original, the, you know, the, uh, the man who made it all happen or whatever, it was one line. And Bob said, give me a little more, give me a little more. Like some of the best writing tips I ever got were from Bob Dylan. He, I did liner notes for a record, uh, his like 30th anniversary concert, I think. And the advice from him was no adjectives, which if you study the writing of Bob Dylan, that's half of his genius is he avoids adjectives. He doesn't flower it up generally. It's like he keeps it a lot of nouns and verbs, nouns and verbs. He hit my being around him is to me still the coolest thing. And yet getting back to being a dad, like I remember at the end of the meeting, the thing that moved me the most was we had like a three hour meeting. I was imitating him to him. It was crazy meeting. Uh, I didn't know half the things he was saying until I got home because he's so much smarter and nonlinear than I am. Uh, but at the end he goes, you got boys now, you got boys. Like knowing that one of them was named after him, I think. And he got them cookies. He ordered room service cookies, black and white cookies and put them in a napkin. And I said, he's okay. He's the greatest genius of our times, but he's also a nice Jewish man who wraps cookies for someone's kids. So I, then one of those, his kids, Jacob, I remember is one of the people who called me years later. Uh, he was getting a doctorate at a college and I get a call, uh, David, I'm about to go on stage. I need a joke. And I'm like, okay, so say, and this is, my wife always say, you're not good, but you're fast. And I don't know in what context she means that, but uh, I said, say, it's so great I'm getting a doctorate. My parents always wanted me to be a doctor. Unfortunately, I wasn't that smart, so I had to go into the family business, which he used, and that was, you know, there's not too many Jew <laughs> jokes you can write for Bob Dylan's son. You didn't even get the Springsteen. Oh, Springsteen, at that same Grammys, after Dylan came in and wanted a little longer intro, I'd written two paragraphs of intros for Tom Hanks to say about Bruce Springsteen. And he was doing, it was that, and it was wordy because it was that Pete Seeger tribute sort of record he did so there was a lot of storytelling to do but hanks came in read it beautifully as he always has anything i've ever gotten to work with him i mean he's so he's like i mean when we did tribute to heroes i said to joel if we have him it's like having you know henry fonda and grapes of wrath just it's so it's so the american calming voice you want to hear but so hanks came in read it it was great and then bruce came in and there's a stand-in reading the intro which is two paragraphs long and all of a sudden, it doesn't sound as great when there's a guy destroying it who's like, you know, an extra. So Springsteen calls me over. He goes, give me one paragraph. I can't live up to two. So I had to pick which paragraph. I looked, it was like a Hobbes choice, like, where do I go here? Uh, but I, he's Bruce Springsteen, so he's the boss, literally. Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson is just, uh, God, I remember when I was asked to write liner notes for, they were reissuing uh, Thriller, Bad, uh, and I think, I think this, at least those two records. And I said, listen, and this was in the height of all the controversies. And I said, let me just talk to him about music. I said, 
people don't want to hear me saying anything about him. Let me, let's just, because I think that's the tragedy of Michael Jackson is the greatest singer I ever heard, an amazing artist, and yet his fame ultimately ate his talent. It, and he had to die for anyone to remember how good he was, anyone white, because I think the, that's one of the things, like the OJ scenario where it broke down. In fact, when he died, uh, I happened to know it early because my older son was in tennis camp at UCLA next to that hospital, and he called me and said, there's something happening here with Michael Jackson because there were all the helicopters, everything was happening. I ended up getting called. It was an amazing day because uh, this just shows you how media has changed. Rolling Stone called and said, we're going to do a, a special issue. You need to talk to everybody in the next week. So I ended up talking to Stevie Wonder, Lionel Richie, uh, Smokey Robinson, all these people who I loved. But at the same time, I got a call from Huffington Post, which I, you know, where I blog for, and they said, what can you write in the next two minutes? <laughs> I said, I could write my top five favorite Michael Jackson songs, and I did, and it had like 4,000 responses in that moment, and I realized that's when I sort of knew media was changing. It's a whole new universe led zeppelin well two quick ones J jimmy page i had one of the worst interviews i ever had with in i was over in england doing something else and there was a box set first there was a box set of the best of led zeppelin this, in those years and then there was a box set of anything that wasn't on the first box and it was sort of like so it wasn't his high priority release but i'm sit down to interview jimmy page who i'm a fan big fan of and he's being a prick to me he's just being incredibly evasive of anything I asked and vaguely rude. I said, listen, have I done something to offend you? Which I've had to say, you, you should ask that question early on in an interview. If it's going like that, I think often you can reverse it. But I said, have I done something to piss you off? He goes, yeah, I'm mad about the review. And I was trying to think, did I review like some recent record of his or something? He goes, I said, what review? He goes, the first Zeppelin album, which was destroyed in Rolling Stone. It was a very negative review in Rolling Stone. But I was four <laughs> I was like, so I said, Jimmy, I was four, and they were fucking wrong. So can we get over that? And the interview got a little bit better. But I've had that a few times in my life where I've had to say, listen, what the fuck is going on here? Because once you start off in a bad direction, it usually gets worse. Sir Paul McCartney. I am probably married to my wife, large measure because of Paul and Linda McCartney. Uh, when I first started dating my wife, uh, I was, a few weeks later, asked to go on the road with McCartney's. I went to South America, uh, and for some reason, Linda liked me. I don't know, I know. Linda McCartney. Linda McCartney, and she did amazingly wonderful things for me. She took a picture of me, which I use as my author's photo on a lot of my books. She sent it to me. She goes, I know you write books. This is a free portrait. And it was a portrait, I was just standing backstage, and she took it, and it's the best photo she ever took, anyone ever took of me, except for... Mary, her daughter, was a staff photographer for musicians, that show I did on Bravo. And I'm like, I only want to be photographed by McCartney women. <laughs> but cut to, uh, so then we came back to the States, and they were, we were in New York at the end of this sort of run of my writing about them, being on the road with them. And she just took me under her wing. And she said, when we got to New York, she goes, are you dating anyone? And I said, I just met a girl. And she goes, and I said, in fact, she's here in New York, because she was in New York on business or something. And she goes, I want to meet her bring her to the rehearsal, the dress rehearsal tomorrow. And for anyone who is a McCartney fanatic, they know better than a McCartney concert, and there are a few things better than a McCartney concert. He's got the best band to this day, unbelievable shows. But 
The only thing better is his dress, his sound checks. He comes out and does nothing from the set. He'll do old R&B that he loves. He'll do weird stuff he's never done. It's just spectacular because it's like it's not the show or the hits you've seen before. It's something. It's a whole other level. And so my wife, who's not even a music-driven person, although she is more now, thought it was the greatest thing. And then we went back to have lunch in the vegetarian catering area. And I had just come from Argentina, where I had no steak because I was with the McCartneys. And, but we're having our veggie lunch, and Linda pulls me over, and she goes, you have to marry that girl now. And I went, what? She goes, and she just looked at me, and she said, and again, maybe because my parents' marriage, I was not inclined or thinking about getting married at all. And she said, do you think I know something about marriage? And I realized, I said, yeah, you do. You've had a great marriage. They had an amazing marriage. He had such a good marriage, he had a bad second marriage because he didn't know marriages could be bad. She was so amazing, a great lady. But she said, you have to marry her right away. And in large measure, because I was ordered to do so, I think I got, I got married that year. I listened to her. And so cut to the Grammys three year, years ago. Uh, McCartney's walking in. I'm backstage dealing with the talent and talking to Ken Ehrlich or something. And my wife is walking down the hall with my two boys. McCartney, who does not do this, stops them and says to my wife, can you take a picture of me with the boys? And to that day, that picture is like the picture I take with me everywhere. It's my favorite picture. And I believe, and what's weird is I have never asked McCartney if I feel it was a spirit of Linda saying I need to have that. Because Linda, those boys would not exist very possibly if not for her. But I, there's also a good chance he thought they were Jonas Brothers. So we'll never, I don't want to know. I've never, I've, I have been around him and not asked him that question. I don't want to know because I, I have my favorite answer. Your proudest moment in your career? Um, I think the tribute, which I think Joel said, it has to be up there because it was not just in the service of celebrity or ego or my own success. It was honestly like a moment of like, how do we keep things together? And, and so uh, that will always be uh, important to me. That maybe is the most meaningful because, uh, you know, that I don't, we can all forget, but we were all like, I had friends who lost their wife in that. I had a cousin who died in that and in 9-11. In and so that, uh, it was the only time Joel, it's definitely the only time I ever saw Joel crying in the booth. And I was crying. And yet it was also, I, I described the experience as manic depressive because I'll never forget like, George Clooney, who was helping us out. George Clooney ran copy for me. Literally, as I was writing script, he would run it to another room to the script department. You know, when you have, like, one of the greatest actors of our times and a producer and all that, he literally was like a PA for me. Uh, and he also, I remember moments like watching, uh, sitting against a wall like the one over there, Brad Pitt was there visiting George like the day before the show or two days before the show. Because we did the show in like four or five days. And... Uh, Clooney came up to Joel and said, uh, you know, Brad really wants to be on the show. Uh, why don't we have this phone bank, which I think he told you about. And that, I remember being with Joel, like we looked at the room, like during the phone bank, we just sort of, when we went, when it came up on the screen, that room, he goes, you got to go there and tell me what it's like. And so I ran 
It was just down the hall, but he couldn't leave because he was directing. But I went down there and it was the most surreal sight you've ever seen because in the face of like absolute pain, there was something of such beauty because people were all there for the right reasons. Like everyone, it was uh, my other favorite moment right before then, I was with Phil, I think, or Phil might've just been out of the room, but I walked in to talk to Julia Roberts who was on the show and she asked me this question. She goes, David, what should I wear? Uh, she was thinking, what do I change into? And I'm like, I, hold on, I said, I have to call my wife. Julia Roberts just asked me what to wear, which if you know me or could see me, it makes it all the more surreal. The crazy thing about that is in the makeup chair in front of her was Clint Eastwood, who was also on the show. And he, between you and me, he looked over at me when she said that. She couldn't see. He gave me a look like, who cares what we wear? If you watch that show, if you could watch that, it's on DVD somewhere. He wore some jacket that didn't fit him, and he looked kind of crazy. It looked like he had a broken arm or something. So Julia Roberts was smart to always, that's why she's Julia Roberts. She always knew like what would be the appropriate thing to wear, a question I have never asked or, or responded to. Your biggest disappointment. It's weird because, again, I live in the present. My recent, I, I literally am bummed out because there's a, a movie. I don't know if I'm allowed to say, but there was a big summer movie that I was asked to do this little cameo in, and I just found out I was cut out. I'll, I'll be a DVD extra, which, you know, it's like, uh, and it involves our friend Judd Apatow, who I love, who put me as a Jewish rock critic, and this is 40 in a yarmulke, you know, which... That was a great, funny experience because there were like three of friends of mine and we saw the screening not knowing if we were in it. But I, now I know I'm not in it. And that, what's weird is I will never, like all these things you're asking me about, I never think of the good things or, you know, I, I wrote nine shows in the last six months or 10 shows that have all gone well. I don't think about that. All the, like in my mind, it's always about, oh my God, I, I was, what did I do wrong? Because clearly I'm great, you know, big screen idol. <laughs> last question what advice do you have for the young person coming up in the world trying to get to the next level and have the kind of career that you have I don't even know what kind of career I have I mean I have of all the people you've had on the show I have a weird career like I remember when I got nominated for, when, for the uh, Emmy for the Tribute to Heroes I was asked to be on a panel of writers and the panel was J.J. Abrams, Larry Wilmore John Wells me. There might have been one other. And they went down saying, what are you most proud of? Kind of thing. And everyone, you know, all of them had brilliant, profound answers. And I was like, I'm most proud that I just qualified for the first time for Guild Insurance, which was true. <laughs> Literally, it happened like that day. Uh, I have a weird career because I do many things. I'm just, I will write for food and sometimes not for food. So my advice is to A, try to find out, find your own voice. And that's weird for me to say, because in part, my success is that I think I work a lot because I ultimately, as a journalist, I don't know if I had the strongest voice. I almost love music too much to, I wasn't very critical as a, I wasn't critical enough in my mind as a journalist. When I wrote about TV, I had a TV column in Rolling Stone for years, which is another way I met Phil uh, and Phil Rosenthal and Ray Romano. Uh, because I would write about the shows I loved, but I was much better as a TV critic because I didn't respect TV nearly as much. I would be able to make fun of it. Music is almost such a, it's almost a religious thing to me, so I wasn't as strong. So what I found was my gift was 
to be able to write for people in their voice, whether it's like writing for the head of a corporation, a big speech, or writing for a comedian jokes. You know, it's like one of my favorite moments ever was uh, Justin Timberlake called me once. Uh, he was giving a, he had a host a, event, I think it was Benet Brith for like his record company head. And he goes, David, can you write me a bunch of Jewish jokes? And I go, Justin, I was born to write you a bunch of Jewish <laughs> jokes. The first one I remember was like, hi, my name's Justin, and I was in a goy band. Uh, <laughs> but, but it was like there were tons of those. And, but the, what, he, what I learned from him, he's someone, like it's where do you learn from people? Like a lot of people you learn from are the people like Ken Ehrlich or you know, this guy Walter Miller who are older than you. But I learned from him, he's younger than me, but he's another guy. You think it looks so easy for him, but he cares about everything he does. After I wrote that speech, he called me up and he said, okay, can you go through the pronunciation of every word? I said, Justin, you don't have to, because the, the more you mispronounce, the funnier it will be. He goes, yeah, but I want to know how I'm mispronouncing it. And that was true. Like a week later, there was a speech he had to give for a hospital, and I used some fancy highfalutin phrase that is not something he had ever heard. And my thing as a writer is like, whenever someone balks at a word, you lose it because if it's not coming, if it's not natural for them, it won't be natural. But he goes, and I remember him this very vividly. He goes, no, no, I need to know what this means. And I thought, okay, that's why you're Justin Timberlake. It's like, that's, he's the only person who needs, I, I need to know what I don't know. And so I would figure you need to know your voice and then you need to know what you don't know and get around people who can help you find that. Awesome. David Wilde, I pray that the next podcast you do, you don't sit down and you say under your breath, fucking interviews. <laughs> thank you so much. You're amazing. No, thank you for having me. I won't listen to this one, but I listen to all the other ones. <laughs> well, what a coincidence. I won't listen to this one either. <laughs> a lot of people won't. No, I'm kidding. I will love this. I will listen to it over and over again. I'm very grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Ben Piazza from Chico, California. Congratulations, Ben. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Okay, landing on Author Dave, August 12th, 2013. Heading is Takes You Behind the Scenes, five stars. 
He writes, I enjoy hearing comics talk about the business, but it's an entirely different thing when the person talking is a big part of the business. I'm trying to listen and work at the same time, but can't. I don't want to miss anything Barry and his guests talk about. Fun stories plus valuable insights equal show. Thank you, author Dave. Very nice. Congratulations. And as always, this is Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. Barry Shot Kennedy. (laughs) And if you don't like the show. He had 10% of the grassy knoll. (laughs) Tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.